You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police has ignited waves of heated demonstrations that have swept across the Bay Area and the country. Of course, protests against police brutality and calls for reform are nothing new, but many believe this moment is different. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we consider what could be done to meet the demands of those who have been taking to the streets from police reform to added accountability to social change. Joining us for that conversation, we're going to welcome onto the program now one of the people who hit the streets this past week or so. That would be Reverend Jethro Moore II. He is the president of the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. Uh, Reverend Moore, great to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Also welcoming onto the program now, Richard Correa. He is the director of the University of San Francisco International Institute of Criminal Justice Leadership, and he's also a former commander in the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, Richard Correa, thanks for being here as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I think that this week, in a lot of ways, both uh, highlighted the longstanding anger that has been there and also, uh, to many people, highlighted many of the reasons why we need these reforms. So I guess just to start, I'm curious for both of your perspectives on what we should take away from uh, this past week of civil unrest across the country. Starting with you, Reverend Moore, what did you take away from this past week? That the uh, current issue uh, with policing is a national issue. There is so much outrage across the country where I do believe that the majority of the community is coming around and seeing that um, our police are no longer protecting. Uh, They have become um, more aggressive in their techniques of policing the communities versus working with the uh, uh, communities. And so, uh, as well as the loss of black lives at the hands of policing, I believe from 2013 to to currently, uh, there's been an estimate of 7,600 and some people at one point killed by police in this nation. And so it's touching all aspects of uh, our humanity in in the inner cities and and especially uh, for communities of color. And Richard Correa with USF, what would you add to that in terms of what you think this last week should be teaching us? Well, I'd start with, uh, to me, folks have moved from being bystanders to allies in uh, standing up for um, doing something about the inequities in this country that are pervasive. And it's interesting, not standing up is allowing uh, things to happen. So I think you've have allies out there. Uh, And the second thing is that uh, for a long time, uh, there are ideas in law enforcement that don't take hold because we tend to move on from incident to the next incident. Uh, And I think it's a great opportunity to maybe uh, redefine the mission, 
and recognize that it's the people that put the authority and power in the hands of the police. And they expect there to be transparency and um, legitimacy in those actions. And I think um, I, could, I could go on, I have more to say, but I'll, I'll stop there and just say that um, a seat at the table is my theme this week. Uh, that Those community members need to be um, designing uh, police procedures and police practices along with the police and redefining the mission of the police. Mm, all right. So all uh, important points that we're going to be returning to throughout this conversation. Before we move on, I think that it is worthwhile to take a second to reflect on how this week shaped up. And it's a, it's an irony that I don't think has been last and anyone that these demonstrations against police brutality sparked a police response that itself now faces many accusations of police brutality. So we're going to look at that a little bit more closely. Let's focus specifically on what unfolded in San Jose, downtown San Jose, the the largest demonstrations starting off uh, Friday afternoon, lasting into the evening, and then we saw repeated protests through the weekend and uh, much of this week as well. Uh, I think it's helpful to focus on San Jose because both myself and Pastor Moore were there. So we have a firsthand experience of uh, that particular uh, series of demonstrations. Uh, Before we get the view from Pastor Moore, though, we're going to bring in the view of two others, that of law enforcement and a protester. Uh, We're going to start with the protester. While I was covering the protest last Friday, I spoke with San Jose resident Noor Michaels about why he was there. And uh, based on our conversation, it was clear that, like many others, the video of George Floyd's killing elicited for him feelings of both anguish and outrage. We as the black community just want to see empathy. We want to understand why y'all can't understand the words empathy, uh, meaning that if you see somebody in distress, you help. That's common knowledge. That's common sense. Like many protesters, he was critical of the San Jose Police Department's response to the demonstration, which included the firing of both tear gas canisters and rubber bullets. Don't make sense. Y'all got everything we don't. And y'all still want to shoot us, tear gas and shot. I saw a little girl get shot 20 years old in the the, the belly with a damn rubber bullet. What what, what does she deserve that for, for protesting her human right? Now, in the face of widespread accusations of police excess, San Jose police officials held a press conference Thursday to give their take on how the demonstrations unfolded. When my boots hit the ground at 7th and Santa Clara, I stepped into a war zone. That's police officer Captain Jason Dwyer recounting his experience as he entered downtown San Jose Friday evening. Uh, We had rocks, bottles, chunks of asphalt, chunks of wood, rebar, anything that you could think of that you could throw at somebody to hurt them, we were getting thrown at. It was Captain Dwyer who gave the first order to riot police to engage with protesters, which he explained this way. The main decision we had to make was, are we going to stay and defend or are we going to give up? Are we going to pull back? Now, if we pull back, we're giving up downtown. We're giving them that space. But once we give them that space, we cannot control what happens in that space. He also defended the use of rubber bullets and tear gas, arguing that direct clashes with protesters would have led to more injuries. SJPD Chief Eddie Garcia is also defending the police response, but he has pledged repeatedly to investigate all individual cases of police misconduct. I'll just add very briefly that SJPD was invited to join this conversation, but they declined. So, Pastor Moore, you have been critical of the police response in San Jose. What do you make of that explanation that you just heard? First, first off, I want to say I, I believe I do know who Jason is, and we've had inter- interactions before. Um, that's not how I found it. Um, when I was given, or, or when I did, when I got downtown to City Hall, I came in on Sixth Street, and there was a kid laying on the ground. 
I helped him up and talked to him. He had a, a mark behind his ear. I then proceeded um, to head towards City Hall and there was somebody tagging. I told him to stop tagging. What I'm saying is uh, there was nobody throwing anything. There was nobody doing anything. And then suddenly they arrived. Uh, there was They had already surrendered that territory for, for that part. So to say that they couldn't surrender anything, they had already given up that space. They didn't have that space. The people had that space. So when I got up the front where the most of the, I would say a lot of the young younger people were and began talking to them, and I explained to them they had to stay three feet away from the, the officers as they lined up to give them their space, there was a lot of dialogue. I was able to dialogue with those kids, right? Um, next thing you know, they lined up. And when I saw them line up, I said, hey, they're getting ready to come forward. There was a, maybe an occasional water bottle that might have came forward, right? And then when they lined up, what I'm trying to say is once they lined up and they began to proceed coming toward the crowd and engage the crowd, especially once they bumped us and started knocking us down, people on the sidelines who had friends became angrier and more stuff started coming. But I just want to make sure that we're clear. Stuff did not start getting thrown to no real extent until the officers started moving and pushing at the crowd. And actually after they knocked down women, and they knocked down the people with kids and they began poking with the batons and enraged the crowd more and more. It actually ignited the situation. So instead of using any de-escalation tools that they're supposed to have been trained in, it appears that they were doing more to escalate the confrontation. And the more of them arrived, the more physical they became. Yeah, and that is... Very similar to what I was hearing from many of the protesters that I spoke with, that this notion that the violence was, in fact, a response to the police response. And uh, I want to bring in Richard Correa with USF once again. Uh, you you weren't at uh, the San Jose protests, I imagine, but I'm wondering if you could comment more broadly uh, about this notion that the protests that we've seen in the U.S. over the past week have been driven, uh, as uh, yes, by anger from protesters, but also from heavy-handed police tactics, that the tactics themselves have been a driver for some of this rage and some of this violence. Well, high overview, I would say that, um, you know, there's no national standards in terms of training, in terms of, and so you, you have different communities policing in different ways. In crowd control, take San Francisco, for instance, where there's thousands of demonstrations a year. The officers and the leadership are well steeped in crowd management and how to facilitate First Amendment rights. Around the country, you can find communities that have no experience in it or very little. And uh, I'm certainly not legitimizing the, uh, you know, the, the notion of going from a, a crowd peacefully protesting if we back up to Ferguson and the next night there's a tank on the street. Um, th- those things s- suggest to me that uh, inexperience, uh, uh, poor training. And let me come back to San Francisco for a second. And, and boy, I don't know. The dividing line between supporting First Amendment rights and facilitating them, which is the goal in San Francisco, and when a protest turns violent is a tough turn. Uh, In San Francisco, with uh, authority granted by the chief on a case-by-case basis, they video, the police video things so that um, there's some after-action analysis that's reliable as to 
what was actually going on. But but let me say that um, that communities that handle uh, First Amendment activities well should serve as models for the rest of the country. And uh, you know you can go far by uh, managing and outreach ahead of time uh, and escalating appropriately. Uh, and and not turning to your blunt instruments, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, too quickly. Uh, that said, each one of these things, um, it's that point when it turns from peaceful to criminal, to fires, to rocks and that sort of stuff that present a real challenge for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, dig into some of these nuances and complexities in just a second. Real quick, I want to remind our listeners that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. On this program, well after days of national protest highlighting police excess and abuse, we consider what happens next. For that conversation, we're joined by Jethro Moore II. He's the president of the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. And we're also joined by Richard Correa, the director of the University of San Francisco International Institute of Criminal Justice Leadership. And uh, just to tell our listeners a little bit more about Reverend Moore, uh, you are also a commissioner for California Post. That is the California Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training. And so you have uh, worked directly on these issues of the best ways to tr- uh, to train uh, police officials, the best ways uh, for their tactics to be reformed. Coming out of this week of civil unrest, what is the reform agenda that you think that uh, advocates for this sort of change should have first and foremost in their mind? What are what are some of the main points that you would want to put there? That's a good question because. Um... There's supposed to be, there were supposed to be at one point focusing on de-escalation, community involvement, but it seems like, uh, to be very honest, uh, we were actually studying or working on the 21st century policing plan that Obama had established. And then all of a sudden, when the 46 minus one gets into office, it looked like they took all that paperwork, all that training and threw it to the side and said, this is what we're going to do. And so, and I, and I believe across this nation, um, um, you, uh, we are seeing uh, over and over. It's um, my, my, my brother Richard has eloquently said that maybe they didn't have the training, but post certificates or certifications are across the state in most police departments. So the training, there is some commonality in there. And so you ask me, what do I want? And what would I want to see for them? Holy, I think that some some leadership needs to change in some of these departments, and. Um, um, some of the training, if you, uh, um, the training needs to be um, taken back away from the warrior cop mentality into the actual service as a peacekeeper. And I don't think they can delineate between who they are right now. It's almost as though it's a loss of identity on what I'm here for, you know. Um, and so we have to get back to who they are as police and who they serve the community. And um, my concern, Richard, I'll even say, is with the way sometimes the unions are responding and and pushing these uh, 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 agendas that would cause them to be more militant or maybe we need to stop the government. I think the first thing we should do is stop the government from giving them surplus military supplies. Then if, if you give the boys the toys, they'll have a reason to play with it. So let's take away giving them this excess military stuff. And, and maybe that, that's a place to start to help de-arm the police 
uh, and take them back to caring for us as, as human beings. And just to say a little bit more about uh, Richard Correa's background as well, you uh, told me before we turn these mics on that you helped lead the response to large, many large protests yourself, including the Occupy protests. So this is something that you have firsthand experience, and we're hearing there for the need to change the mentality. Uh, we, we just heard the term uh, warrior police officer, warrior cop. What what role do you think the police unions have played in creating that mentality of warrior cop and what can be done to unwind that? Well, I ran a police, the San Francisco Police Academy's regional academy for three years and passed, you know, eight classes of 50 officers through there. And I, I while there may be some examples of the warrior mentality, we uh, teach to a, a post standard of training that uh, deals with a whole lot of issues, and I think that we have good officers out there. Uh, we can't ignore that. Now, do we have problems? Yes. Uh, to, to your question, though, um, your original question, uh, the areas first and foremost I think we have to look at is how do we get the community a seat at the table defining the mission? What does the community expect the police to do? Because as we have it now, we take these situations where um, young trained officers are sent in to deal with every manner of problem. Uh, and I've seen problems that are so over the top that we were, it should be surprising that we expect a good outcome. And we get good outcomes most of the time. But if I had my magic- You mean, you mean civil unrest or just uh, crowds being too unruly? I'm not speaking of crowds directly, but if you want to restate your last question, I'll, I'll go to that. Just to, Pastor Moore brought up a lot of stuff that I really agree with, and uh, it, it kind of got, got me thinking a little bit more. Uh, and to say that, um, you know, what's, what's the mission that we're defining? Because if the community is unhappy with the services, well, then we need to get together and say, well, what is it that, that ex exactly the mission? Let's redefine it. 48 police officers were killed in felonious attacks in 2019, the last year the Leoka numbers were out. Um, I submit that it's, the current system isn't working well for anybody. Uh, and on the issue of unions that the uh, uh, pastor brought up, I, I'd love to see unions more focused on officer wellness and benefits and uh, salary and, and, um, and, and, and things like that uh, in, instead of the uh, defensive uh, nature of the work. That said, uh, I could go on. Well, that said, you know, the other side of the coin is, is that imagine a job where you take off with your training in the morning to go do your job and, and you've made a mistake during the day. And I'm not equating it to anything we're seeing in the media. Your organization is designed to turn on you quickly and they begin to look at the union as their only line of support. Internally, also, the promotions are sometimes, uh, uh, you know, helped along by good union relationships. Uh, I don't know how we unpack that, Pastor, but I agree with you that uh, that's part of the complexity. Well, briefly, and then I'm going to turn things back to Pastor Moore, uh, uh, Richard Correa, if you could. W briefly, what are, your, what are your thoughts on how you do get that level of community oversight? What's the model that might allow communities to have more buy-in into how their, uh, the police officers conduct themselves? Fifteen years ago or more, I wrote a paper on the full implementation of community policing. Community policing has not been fully implemented. It's really a buzzword. 
uh, the full implementation would be removing the paternalistic nature of things now, where at some point in history we outsourced public safety to the police. Uh, it takes a whole community to make a community safe. You have to get folks as co-equal partners, I think, uh, uh, designing um, the police mission, not hearing just hearing what the community has to say, but the community having a seat at the table. That's our future. And and uh, and that portends change for everyone, I think, but good change. Yeah. All right. We'll turn things over to uh, Reverend Moore in just a second. Real quick, I want to remind our listeners one last time that they are listening to KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, well, it's a string of protests that have jolted the nation, but if this is a turning point, what are we turning towards? We consider what a police reform agenda to address the concerns of protesters would look like. Joining us, we have on now Jethro Moore II, president of the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP, as well as Richard Correa, the director of the University of San Francisco International Institute of Criminal Justice Leadership. So, Reverend Moore, if you could uh, expand on this call for community oversight. That's something that I definitely heard you bring up this week. What would that look like? What What does it take to make that happen? A community oversight, it takes the will of the, of the government officials and the will of the police department. They have to agree that uh, uh, it's time for a change or a new direction. Because um, sometimes when you mandate something on it, they'll still uh, reject it. But that is the start where we need to get to as soon as we can. Police oversight or community oversight, as you said, not a buzzword, but actual activities by the community and that means members from the community in which these police are in uh, uh, are, are part of this community oversight. They have to have subpoena power and ability to look at records, all right, and the recommend stuff to the grand jury in order to get um, us away from um, IA, the Internal Affairs Department, where it just seems like it just gets washed and it comes back out as not clean, all right? N- nothing happens, nothing's changed. So we need an independent community oversight with subpoena powers uh, that can look into these records. And uh, and you have to have the people who have no affiliation with the police department and no political aspirations that they're trying to climb up the ladder. So it's going to be very, uh, very hard to pick people that that aren't trying to climb up. So because a lot of times we see governments use it. And I also want to make sure, Richard, I agree some more resources from the union needs to go to uh, officer care and welfare. We don't talk enough about that. You know, so because it's a lot on them when they're out there, but we need oversight over 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 policing that's community based. But this oversight goes through the system. That means more community involvement at post, even, you know, more community involvement at that level, at the training levels, at the schools to to um, actually engage. And and for a while, it looks like we were going that way. Again, we you know the 21st century police, and I know that they brought in uh, Kamala Harris brought in a whole bunch of people, the groups and opportunities. And then suddenly it all just disappeared. But again, community oversight with um, uh, members from the community, non-elected officials have nothing to do with the city councils that they're coming out of so that nobody's trying to springboard or use somebody to manipulate. Much like we see, uh, uh, we also make it, un- we need to make it unethical for police unions or, or for prosecutors to receive money or endorsements from police unions That way it would free the prosecutors to prosecute cops when they find it bad instead of uh, uh, kneeling to uh, what the unions pressure uh, because 
what unions say is that uh, it will support your, your candidacy. And politicians generally give in to that, even when they sometimes, I believe, know something is wrong. If we can take away their political ties to, and, uh, uh, um, to trying to get elected officials that are friendly to uh, getting tough on crime, as an example, is, uh, would be an, another point where we, where we need to work with as far as uh, changing the whole ethos or, uh, uh, of policing, I believe. I want to say that I've, I've read the uh, report on 21st century policing, and what troubles me about it is it's filled with words like, to the extent practicable, explore relationships, look into, uh, you know, um, words like that that are soft. And I think we're at a time where we need to set national standards that agencies should adopt in terms of their best practices, and then they're held to in the courts. Uh, we don't have that now. We have a, a, a collection across the country that's mixed in areas like, uh, let me just pick one, selection of officers. M my experience is, is that police work is largely a job of judgment. If you're a person who likes helping people and have good judgment, you're probably going to do okay. Our methodology for finding those type of officers uh, needs some work. It's uh, a lot of it's outdated. Uh, uh, so all areas will change. To focus on the unions and say, let's eliminate their power, well, then we'd have to change our whole political system because they're all connected in with the politicians. I think we've all evolved into areas that, that don't serve the community best, uh, every aspect of this system of policing in the country. And our road back is community needs a seat at the table and we need standards on 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 bias awareness, training and education, uh, so that when when there's a, a lawsuit, when there's um, a challenge to practices, someone's got to be able to explain why you didn't trained to the best practice out there. Mm. So uh, tossing things uh, once again back to uh, Reverend Moore. So over this past week, one of the ideas that has sprung up uh, from a lot of people who are calling for reform, who are saying that reform is needed, is this idea that they they don't just want to see the standards and practices at uh, police offices change. They actually want to see a defunding of police. They want to see the the power, the authority, and the capabilities of these police departments shrunken down because uh, it seems like essentially they, they feel like this uh, authority is not something that can be healed. What you're calling for here sounds more in the vein of uh, reform and changing how the system works. What do you make of those calls to defund police? Do you think that the system as it is can be fixed? Well, I believe anything can be corrected if given the right attention to it. Uh, and new direction, um, um, it can happen. Um, defunding the police uh, is a great concept and, and very doable because I'm sure there's places in there where they, uh, as they call them, perishable skills, you know, and non-perishable skills. Uh, we need to really look at how we can take away. So again, how much of that is in that military expenditure budget uh, to upkeep uh, those tanks, those armored vehicles, uh, those rifles, the training, you could take a lot of that money away and probably put it in more into counseling and services to help with mental health response when we have critical incidents or mental health issues. Um, um, I'd like to see that happen. The, the money moved away from that into maybe even to education since we're having such a hard time with education. 
uh, or, or child care. But also, I think part of correcting the policing is being more active in using the decertification process to disqualify officers. As we use the Minnesota officer as an example, he had 18 prior incidents. At some point, he should have lost his certification for um, whatever those incidents might be. He should have been decertified for, uh, and once he gets decertified, it should go into the National Decertification Index. And uh, all the states except for six or seven of them participate in this index. And see, if we can get more of them to participate in decertification, dequalifying, uh, you can be disbarred as a lawyer. Uh, you can lose your license to uh, be a, a cosmetologist, but you cannot lose a license for being a police. And if, if we start looking at taking away their license to protect police, we then would stop and, and hold down the possibilities of them taking laterals or transferring, like lateral and transferring to another state and getting back into police when there are bad characters and bad actors. So yes, I, I would say defund them, take the money and move it to another aspect of healing or health uh, or, or, or back into the community to help establish the community oversight. Uh, that's what I would, I would recommend, yeah. And uh, Richard Correa, so you, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard uh, similar appeals, this, uh, this hashtag defund the police. I mean, what that speaks to, I imagine, is just a real despair that change at this point is, is possible. What do you take away from that? And, and where do you see the avenues for progress in uh, mending some of these broken relationships? On the issue of defunding, I, I, I have to say this, that over my 35 career year career, I'm, more and more things were placed on police officers to handle as part of their day-to-day duties. And I finished my career feeling as though mental illness, drug addiction, homelessness uh, could be better handled by other parts of government. But over the years, policymakers have stuck more and more on the police. Just it's a it's a nimble tool. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of reasons that that they have done that. I and I come back to we have to unpack the mission and say, you know, what is it that the community wants the police to do? I and come to agreement about that. But it really doesn't have to be an agreement since the community dictates, uh, uh, should dictate and can dictate the actions of the police. The um, the notion of taking away licenses, uh, the uh, Pastor uh, Reverend Moore brought up, uh, uh, you know, the issue of uh, professionals. I'm one that uh, I could be held accountable in front of a, a state, uh, the state bar. I. However, um, police officers get in that car and it's the public that calls them to situation after situation. They're very complicated. 18 complaints should get on an early warning system, that's for sure, uh, and call for uh, maybe training, some intervention. It has to become part of the culture. But having complaints alone uh, and equating that somehow to delicensing I'd say that there's uh, more granularity to that. I mean, you can get to both. Uh, certainly, there are some folks that aren't appropriate for the job, and they should be held accountable. And we should select more carefully, uh, and and uh, and and train uh, uh, and eliminate during the training in the field training program those folks that don't fit. But once you get past probation, the same level of accountability at every level should be in there. And I think that will go far uh, to 
defining and designing uh, police responses that are keeping with what the community expects. Mm. All right. Well, it sounds like through the course of this uh, conversation, we've found a number of points of agreement, although working out the details for all of this is going to be uh, a difficult process and we'll, we'll have to mark it as we go. But Reverend Moore, I want to I give you the, the closing thought here in terms of how hopeful we should be that progress is made on the issues that we've discussed here. You know, you, you, you hear some folks talk about, and this is probably an appropriate question for a reverend, you hear folks talk about the soul of America and this idea that right now the soul of America is sick and it's not just it's not just a matter of this tactic or that tactic needing to be tweaked. It's that the there's something fundamentally broken about the system and our approach to uh, making the society work. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you what your view is on that notion of this this soul of America and uh, what that means for our ability to repair some of these wounds. Um, I'm very hopeful that. We have seen an outbreak across this country that America, Americans are crying out for change. And I'm hopeful that the communities will stay the course to continue to march and to rally around change. And uh, police departments and the government people who are in office will hear this and we would make this change. I'm most fearful of a year from now uh, when the trial of those four officers, if they're not found guilty, what's going to happen to America if it hasn't corrected or started making the corrections up until that point? So if we haven't started putting implementing police oversight, community oversight by policing, if we're not looking at putting money over into more mental health care for citizens uh, uh, from from uh, a different source, and uh, this guy, those guys get released, or or there's a light sentence given and there's been no change and no direction of changes, then I become fearful for how America will react and what what that reaction will look like. Mm. All right, well... Hopeful, but yet very yeah. fearful. <laughs> hopeful and fearful at the same time. Those are uh, tough emotions to square, but I think that all of us understand exactly what you mean right now. We are going to have to round out the program right there, though. We have once again been speaking to Jethro Moore II, president of the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. Jethro Moore, thank you for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Also been joined by Richard Correa, the director of the University of San Francisco International Institute of Criminal Justice Leadership. Richard Correa, thank you to you as well. Thank you for letting me participate in the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.